Welcome to Thinking Hard or Hardly Thinking with your host, Aaron Marks, a podcast about taking a high-level view of the dilemmas that stimulate and inspire us to find our place in the world. Now, Thinking Hard or Hardly Thinking. A surprising but reliable mathematical relationship that seems to govern nature and human dynamics is the Pareto Principle, variously known as the 80-20 Principle or the Law of the Vital Few. It is essentially a dictum that states we will always find some kind of gross inequality when examining naturally occurring systems of any kind, with the vast majority of the results owing to the efforts of an extreme minority of factors. While natural phenomena which exhibit this trait are allowed to be free of moral judgment, the Pareto Principle, as it describes human interactions in terms of business, governance, politics, and other realms, creates one murky ethical dilemma after another, as we are faced over and over with the question of how best to control, distribute, or redistribute the inevitable results of its effects in our world of social and economic interactions. The Pareto distribution is, ine- is inevitable, but proposed solutions to the problems it can create are diverse and fraught. What effect does this have on our moral outlook and the vitality of our human spirit? We'll be exploring all of that and more today on Thinking Hard or Hardly Thinking. Today's episode is brought to you by Clearly Simple Business Consulting. If you are an entrepreneur or business owner who is stimulated by this discussion, you may very well find Clearly Simple to be a good fit. We connect with business people driven by a deep purpose, curiosity, and passion for providing their service to the world, and frustrated by the task of capturing it in the perfect messaging, branding, marketing, and systems. We enrich your enterprise on every level, from vision to team dynamics, from web design to culture, from social media marketing to tracking, and it all comes down to a deep dive into your identity as an entrepreneur, because everything flows out of that. Until you have that piece, you really don't have anything, but once you do, you have everything. Check us out at www.clearlysimple.net. Clearly Simple Business Consulting. And now, thinking hard or hardly thinking. In 1906, an Italian engineer turned social scientist made an astute observation that offered a missing but crucial piece of vocabulary with which to describe a very important economic reality. He noticed the pattern everywhere. First, like Gregor Mendel with his genetics, in his garden, where a very small number of pea plants yielded the vast majority of healthy edible peas, 20% of the plants yielding 80% of the peas, to be exact. Pareto dubbed this observation and resulting principle the law of the vital few. More colloquially, it is often called the 80-20 principle, and it is variously useful and morally inconvenient, depending on where you see it. Don't worry, we'll get into the moral inconvenience in due course. But let's start with the usefulness, because we all have pea plants of various kinds, for which we are responsible to increase the yield. Touted by such business authors as Richard Koch and Tim Ferriss, the 80-20 principle has become an invaluable shorthand for discovering hidden levers of profitability and commerce, and diagnosing hidden problems in systems of all kinds. If you do a reasonably deep analysis of your business or household, 
you will likely find that some form of any or all of the following statements are surprisingly accurate. 80% of the sales come from just 20% of the customers. 20% of the products are responsible for 80% of the sales. 80% of the views on a YouTube channel come from 20% of the videos. 20% of the family members consume 80% of the candy. 80% of the new business comes from 20% of the advertising techniques. 20% of the sales force are responsible for 80% of the conversions. And on and on and on. Take a look at the systems in your care. I guarantee you will find numerous relationships of this kind. These are abstract examples, of course, and the precise numbers will vary. But the rule states that dynamics such as these are most certainly at work somewhere in your operations, indeed all operations, and that the numbers will reflect the nature of that proportion in some way, with some very small factor punching far beyond its weight and creating results of disproportionate magnitude. This is useful to us as system analysts and engineers in that it allows us to get more bang for our buck, or lira, as it were, simply by focusing on more of what is working. If 70% of our new leads come from just 15% of the marketing methods we are using, what happens if we allocate 40% of our marketing budget to said methods? The Pareto Principle predicts that our results will improve accordingly. I think we probably make observations, related calculations, and consequent adjustments to our systems all the time using this law as a guiding principle, even if we're not aware of it. But now that you are, you will become a system superstar. That's one implication of the Pareto Principle, benign, beneficial, and, on the balance, ethically neutral, even positive. But there is an underbelly, and for this we turn to Pareto's subsequent observation, one with considerably greater significance and moral charge, and one that has given sharp definition and clarity to ongoing debates about inequality for the last century. After observing his pea plants, Pareto found a very similar distribution in the land ownership of Italy. 80% of the land in all the Italian state was owned by a mere 20% of its inhabitants. It was the first coherent, crystallized description of wealth inequality, which inevitably stratifies within human societies. I recently heard a fascinating explanation of Marx's thought. It helped me to shift my understanding of the infamous economic thinker away from the utopian revolutionary, who was so maligned by free marketeers, and realized that he was more describing his past and present, and speculating about the future, rather than prescribing it, which is how so many of us have come to think of him. Whatever his view of the post-capitalist future, he saw it as inevitable, precisely because of the ever-present imbalances that Pareto observed, even if he did not have the same words to describe them. But, in essence, Marx was pointing out that the Pareto distribution is always there, driving some kind of dramatic imbalance of power in every means of production. Slavery, of course, needs no explanation here. Feudalism, not much of an improvement. The differential of economic power between a lord and a serf is well captured by 80-20, likely or 99-1. With capitalism, we at least have the promise, though some would call it illusion, of upward mobility, which softens the Pareto distribution. But thanks to corruption, cronyism, the sheer mercilessness of monopolistic tendencies, wealth and power still concentrates, and the inequality continues to widen. From our particular historical vantage point, we have seen some examples of Marx's then-theoretical communist utopias playing out on the ground, and the resulting classes have typically proven to stratify just like all previous modes of production. The Pareto distribution still shows up, even more extremely in some cases, and accompanied by repressive tyranny and political violence to boot. It simply seems to be a law of nature. 
How are we to formulate coherent concepts of contentment, ambition, justice, stability, with the Pareto distribution governing economics and power? At my introduction to the Pareto distribution, the presenting speaker told us to look around the hotel ballroom in which my business development group was meeting. We were music and dance studios assembled from all over the world, gathered around tables in groups of 10 or so. He said, if you have 10 people at your table, two of you will possess wealth roughly equal to the other eight of you put together. While we didn't divulge our financial status to one another quite that explicitly, it was easy enough to get a sense based on the information we did share, such as student numbers in our programs. The lifestyle afforded by serving 800 students is much different from that afforded by serving 75. And if you gather all the competing services in your town and compare them, a very small number will dominate the market. This is reliably true. Does it even make sense to try to compete? Who knows? Perhaps you will end up being the one on top. Thanks to the Pareto distribution, human societal organization and stability has faced the perpetual challenge of creating enough prosperity, enough contentment, enough justice in the face of the inevitable equality that will always be present. Efforts to enforce or artificially impose equality so often prove to be worse than the disease. If it's a law of nature, you just can't fight gravity. And so the human cycle of consolidation and redistribution continues. I think the Durants put it well in Lessons of History. This little paragraph changed my thinking forever. So succinctly does it sum up the economic reality of humankind. Quote, Normally and generally, men are judged by their ability to produce. Since practical ability differs from person to person, the majority of such abilities in nearly all societies is gathered in a minority of men. The concentration of wealth is a natural result of this ability and regularly recurs in history. The rate of concentration varies with the economic freedom permitted by the morals and laws. Despotism may for a time retard the concentration. Democracy, allowing the most liberty, accelerates it. The relative equality of Americans before 1776 has been overwhelmed by a thousand forms of physical, mental, and economic differentiation, so that the gap between the wealthiest and the poorest is now greater than at any time since imperial plutocratic Rome. In progressive societies, the concentration may reach a point where the strength of number in many poor rivals the strength and ability in the few rich. Then the unstable equilibrium generates a critical situation which history has diversely met by legislation redistributing wealth or by revolution distributing poverty. Close quote. What are your takeaways from that remarkably dense and illuminating passage that digests so much of human history for us? Does it cause you to rethink your notions about wealth, markets, freedom, free will, social justice? If it does not, I might submit that you are not being thoughtful or sufficiently sensitive to the nature of paradox in your economic outlook. How can we form a coherent and internally consistent moral view about economics? Here are some of the issues that arise for me. Number one, I value freedom, but I also value societal stability and general prosperity, enough so that none need worry about basic subsistence or medical care. This raises other issues that I've likely addressed in other monologues, but I don't wish to digress. I don't know that freedom and equality can ever be truly balanced, nor is either clearly superior to the other and anyone who claims to have an open and shut case is being dishonest. Even the most pointedly objective libertarian economist, Milton Friedman, suggested that the absolute freedom of markets is only truly possible with a reverse income tax of some kind, to give those at the bottom a stable cushion on which to land and from which to rise. Number two, 
It is disheartening to know that no economic system will yield the utopia we seek. Marx can be forgiven for lacking the complete picture about which he wrote, but none at this point in time. It seems Pareto distributions are inevitable, and that capitalism, to adapt the old Churchill chestnut, is the worst economic system, except for all the others. It does seem to better facilitate freedom and upward mobility than any other economic system we have yet seen. But Pareto always rears his head. Number three, we may not be economically free. The fact that the Pareto principle so reliably appears within economic systems of all kinds indicates that, no matter how hard the vast majority of us strive, the dizzying rewards of the upper reaches are largely a matter of luck in a variety of different ways, and that this is largely deterministic. We do not choose our gifts, our initial conditions, the network presented by our familial connections. While an innovator can certainly be said to deserve the wealth that their invention attracts, the real question is whether they were in any sense free to choose the innovation that struck them. Further, we are all playing a statistical game. Imagine you are in a class at a business school with nine other classmates. You all spend the same time in class, listen to the same lectures from your instructor, read the same texts, study the same cases. According to the Pareto Principle, two of you will end up with wealth and success equivalent to the other eight combined. Which group will include you? Can you choose this? Can anyone be said to make a free choice even if they feel that they are? Does this rub your sense of economic justice the wrong way? Would you accuse the eight of working less hard than the two, or lacking some important virtue or perspective? Can any of this be said to involve free choice? What does this do to your theory of success and the idea of, quote, getting ahead in a supposedly upwardly mobile economic system? Is this sense merely a useful illusion that will always preserve the hegemonic power of a minuscule oligarchy that inevitably rises no matter how many times wealth is redistributed through legislative or revolutionary means? So, where does that leave us? Is there really a problem here? I'm not entirely sure. While our moral intuitions stand agape at the wealth inequality that is present in our world, we could counter that if the 80% are well-fed, as so many of us are, with healthy bodies, satisfying work, loving families, modern conveniences that trickle down as prices drop precipitously on the newest gadgets to afford pretty much all of us a lifestyle over which those of even a hundred years ago would drool and envy, we can scarcely imagine a better world. So, is there really a problem here? Rationally, perhaps not. But we can reason our way to almost anything, can't we? Our intuitions still pause. And the fact that these distributions are so reliable means that who gets to the top is just so darn arbitrary. Where's the justice in that? I just know that I take advantage of innovations from Bill Gates, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison every single day. And I really wouldn't want to have to sit through 95 minutes of Bucks to Huda and his pals to listen to 5 minutes of Bach. But how much wealth does one person really need? Still, if you tamper with that mechanism, isn't that a slippery slope? But if you don't, can we rely on a society stable enough to incubate those innovations in the first place? I guess we simply need to stay vigilant, grant enough freedom for entrepreneurship to flourish and offer its gifts, and spread the wealth just enough to keep everyone content. Sorry, that's really the best I can do here, I'm afraid, as I have to go and tend to my own pea plants. I'm going to leave you with Durant's poetic conclusion regarding this topic, because I really can't say it any better myself. I'm just glad I live when I do and where I do, because while I'm certainly no one percenter, the 99 is not a bad place to be, all things considered. Here's Durant, writing in 1968. Quote, We conclude that the concentration of wealth is natural and inevitable, and is periodically alleviated by violent or peaceable partial redistribution. In this view, all economic history is the slow heartbeat of the social organism, 
a vast systole and diastole of concentrating wealth and compulsive recirculation. Thanks for listening to Thinking Hard or Hardly Thinking. I hope you've enjoyed it and found it stimulating. Please download, subscribe, and review to help spread the word to more great listeners like you. As always, this episode has been brought to you by Clearly Simple Business Consulting. Business consulting for purposeful entrepreneurs who want to enter the marketplace with deep intention and clear communication. We look at every element of your business from numbers to systems, to branding, to marketing, to tracking, to team dynamics, and make sure it matches your purposeful intention. Reach out to us for a free initial consultation at www.clearlysimple.net. And one final note for today. I often have people tell me they treasure this kind of exploratory conversation and that they are not able to have it with anyone else in their life. It's like I'm validating all the secret thoughts they have had all their lives and giving them space to air them when no one else realized why they were important or even understood. For some of us, it is these thoughts and a safe space to air them that gives us the purpose and meaning to keep moving forward, finding our unique place in this strange, often overwhelming, but magical and wonderful world. If this is you, you probably know who you are. Congratulations. You're not alone. If you'd like to take your thinking to the next level, I invite you to reach out and see if coaching with me is a good fit. Just go to AaronJMarks.com and follow the directions you see there. I promise I'll never pressure you, and if it's right, it will happen quite organically. But if I'm piquing your interest, you should check it out, because having me as a conversation partner will change your life. It will energize and inspire you, and you never know what will happen or where your life will go after that. Just go to www.AaronJMarks.com. That's A-A-R-O-N-J is in jump. MARX.com and check it out. I know it can be lonely to want to think and talk like this, but if you're here, remember you're not alone and I'm on your side. I look forward to talking with you soon. Thanks again for listening. This has been the Thinking Hard or Hardly Thinking podcast with your host, Aaron Marks. We'll see you next time when we'll continue to take a high level view of the dilemmas that stimulate and inspire us to find our place in the world. We'll see you then.